the Sunday Sermons Podcast. We're going to start with a quick poll. There's no wrong answers. I just want to see. I think it's going to be a beautiful representation of how God unites people. Would you, uh, if you're joining us online, you can join in with little emojis, thumbs up emojis, smiley face, something like that. But would you raise your hand if you grew up in a church a lot like Morrison Hill, an independent Christian church, not tied to a denomination, but you grew up, that's, that's, that's where you were raised. That's how you got it. Pretty small min- minority, actually. Okay. Raise your hand if you grew up in a church that was similar. It feels kind of the same vibe, but you were part of a, a, a denomination. You were part of a big, okay, there's even more. Okay. How about, raise your hand if you were part, uh, you grew up in a church that was uh, a denomination, well-known, part of the body of Christ, and nothing like this at all. You're still looking around going, what in the world? Okay, that's actually almost everybody. That's really cool. Uh, Two more, two more categories. Raise your hand if you actually didn't grow up in church. This is all new to you. Awesome. Praise God. Okay, and here's the last one. Raise your hand if you really aren't going to grow up anytime soon. I'm raising my hand. You just... We're not into the growing up thing. For real, though, that is so beautiful to see how we can come from so many different backgrounds and find unity when we unite in Jesus. We find our unity in what we believe about who he is and what his scriptures tell us. And we find this idea that he started out the church with. He used that Greek word ekklesia, which the first believers all all just would have known that that meant a couple of things. This is a review for most of you, I hope. I hope if it's first time, pay attention. But that word, he could have chosen so many other different words that all mean some sort of a group or a team. And he chose one that they understood meant two things. Everybody's invited And if you join the team, everybody has a job. Rich and poor sit next together in an ecclesia. People who are popular, people who are not, are next to each other. Everybody's got a job to do. Everybody has a voice in that kind of a group. And that's what God set up. As the church went on, we're not going to spend too much time reviewing. If you need to go back, you can look back at some of the other sermons. This is the third in a series. But last week we mentioned Justin Martyr. He was many, uh, one of several different apologists, people that uh, tried to convince people of the two core truths of the church. One, Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the Jews had been expecting to save all of us. And now it's not just for the Jews, but for everyone. Also, uh, for everyone else that Jesus was who he claimed to be, period. The way, the truth, the life. So they would reason with the people who were into Greek philosophy. They would work together to try to help everybody understand that. Another one of those early apologists. And by the way, that word, when you hear that, it's not about um, apologizing in the sense of I'm sorry. It's, it's, um, apologetics is all about just reasoning for the truth, helping someone understand. Another one of those was Irenaeus. And he went against a bunch of different heresies, a bunch of different things that were wrong, that were being taught at that time. And he had a really famous saying, trust your bishop. Sadly, that got twisted over time. It didn't mean what he meant it to be. That, that word bishop is actually taken from the Greek word episkopos. We're going to talk more about that later. It's one of the only two uh, very explicit job descriptions that we have for the church that are actually taken from the scriptures themselves. They're not a means to an end. But episkopos is, is what we would call an elder. 
And some churches call them bishops, but they're people who are elected, they're set aside to help guide the church. And what he was saying is, there's no way that all of us apologists can keep up with all the random stuff going around. You all have people that are guiding you, trust them. Eventually, though, that got twisted around to be, you can't question the people that are in charge of you. You can't challenge them. They're infallible. Whatever they say is like God is speaking. That is not what he meant, and it's not true. But we keep going. Today, I'm actually going to uh, use more than normal some Greek words and Greek references and go back to this is what the word means. And I promise you, I get it that what that really looks like is that I'm some sort of a Greek geek or a word nerd. I know that doesn't make me look cool. It's probably not your very favorite thing to listen to, but I think it's very important, and here's why. Have you ever seen the movie Princess Bride? I always think about it in this way. I love that movie, and I love it that one point where the one guy keeps saying, inconceivable, 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 and finally Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And sadly, that's where a lot of the fights and denominations and church splits and disagreements have happened over the years is we just misunderstand some of the words. And and, and we have this definition versus this definition. We're not even fighting over the actual scripture. We're fighting over interpretations of the scripture. Does that make sense? And so today, when you hear me over and over going back, here's what the Greek word says. I'm not trying to impress you or anything. I'm, I'm actually scared to do it that many times as I'm going to today. But this is really important. We've got to go back to the original. So here we go. First off, disciples and apostles. This may surprise some of you. Some of you may know this. But disciple simply means follower. And apostle simply means those who are sent out. It's not a position. It's a task. The disciples of Jesus, the first 12, they were special because they actually followed Jesus around in the flesh. But they were disciples because they followed Jesus. That was their job. That was their task. And whenever he sent them out, even in the Gospels, in the original language, it switches over to the other title, Apostle, even long before Jesus went back up to heaven. For example, Mark 6, verse 30, it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught calls them apostles right there, not because Jesus had promoted them or given them a new position of authority, but because he had just sent them out on a mission trip and they were coming back to report what had just happened. This is a task that they received. I didn't tell John what I was going to use today, but I love it how the Holy Spirit puts things together. Uh, One of the ways that Jesus taught all of the leaders all of the time was to serve with humility. And one of the most classic, obvious ways he did that was when he washed the disciples' feet. And that very night, he said this, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Some people don't know that, but that word messenger, it's usually translated messenger in most English translations. That's apostle. It's the same thing. It's not talking about those 12 people and only those 12 people. It's talking about anyone who is sent out by somebody is not going to be greater than the one who sent them. Is this tracking so far? And when we understand that, a lot of other scriptures make a lot more sense. One of the early elders or overseers, episcopos people in the, in the church was James 
the, and this was not James the Apostle. James the Apostle, there's Peter, John, and James, the three that were almost always with Jesus. He's killed off right out the gate. He, like, he was one, the second martyr that we know about. There was Stephen, and then there was James. Boom. He's killed off. But James, Jesus' brother, took leadership and was given leadership. He was elected as the elder of the church of Jerusalem. And then he, that James, and Peter and John, were they were known as what Paul called the pillars. They were some of those. But the apostles, the 12 apostles, they just kept being sent out. They were mobile. They didn't set up some big church and this is the official church. And because this is where John preaches or where Peter preaches or Andrew or Bartholomew, they were sent out. They were moving all the time. We see this very clearly in scripture. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. This probably would have been James, the brother of Jesus, and some other people from that church praying over them and sending out Peter and John. Why? Because they're apostles. They're people who get sent places. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's talking about a whole bunch of people that work with him. He says, as for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches. That's how it's translated a lot. In the Greek, it's apostle. They are apostles of the churches and an honor to Christ. They are ones who are sent out by the churches on behalf of Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. He's not talking about himself and the, uh, the other 12. And of course, you know, Matthias replaced Judas and all that. So I'm just going to keep saying 12, but you know the details. He's talking about him and the other people who started the church in Thessalonica on a mission trip. The people who had been sent to them. In Galatians, it's even clearer. He's talking in chapter 2. As for those who were held in high esteem, he's talking about the leaders in the church of Jerusalem when he first, if you remember, Paul used to be Saul. Everybody heard this one before? Used to persecute the church. I'm racing through it because we're covering so much territory today, but are you tracking still? Have I lost anybody? Are Are we still together? Okay, good. Here we go. So Paul used to persecute the church, and then he does this 180 degree turn. Now he's trying to help serve the church. So he had to report to the people in Jerusalem, James and the others, and he had to get their permission, their endorsement before he could really do this. He's talking about this to the Galatian church. He says, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. In other words, I am an apostle. I am somebody who is sent to the non-Jews in the exact same way that Peter is an apostle, someone who is sent to the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes on, James, and this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, Cephas, that's Peter, his, his other name, and John. 
Those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked, listen, this is really important. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing that I had been eager to do all along. So, so far so good, right? It still sounds like how Jesus taught them to serve. Their highest priority is to go into all the world and make disciples for Jesus. They're being sent. They consider themselves people who are sent. And one of their highest priorities is wherever we go, make sure we take care of the poor. There's nothing here at all that's hinting about them amassing power or riches or trying to become politically active or any of the other things that we sometimes associate with churches. Instead, they are obsessed with building the kingdom of God, which transcends all other nations and governments and organizations and clubs and schools and whatever else we may have loyalty to. I love how Paul often refers to himself as a slave of Jesus and how he often um, refers, he actually addresses the churches before he even addresses the leaders of the churches. Here's an example, Philippians 1.1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants, that word is actually in Greek, it's doulos, which is really slaves, but that's kind of offensive today, so we normally say servants. Of, slaves of Christ Jesus to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with, and here's episkopos, the overseers, or what we would call elders, and Deacons. This is the word diakonos, which literally means a servant. As in, another word we would probably use is steward or um, butler or something like that. It's someone who's entrusted with someone else's property. This is not just a random slave or a random employee. This is somebody who has some, they've been entrusted with something important. They have a task to do. And these are the two words, these are the two jobs that we actually have explicit job descriptions for in the scriptures. So I just want to say out loud here, before we go any further, I want to make sure as we continue through what the scriptures say, and as we continue through that some stuff from history that we know about how things evolved here, if it sounds like I'm picking on any one church, I am not. Please believe me. I'm just trying my best to tell you the truth. It's just sometimes the things that we man-made things that we embrace, we think that it all, we, we, we imagine that that's what it was like all the way back. But a lot of this stuff that we just take for granted, pews, for example, buildings, lights, microphones, headset microphones, all of those things are things that are means to an end trying to accomplish God's will. And when we imagine the apostles, they didn't have the little Pope hats. They also didn't wear blue jeans and ill-fitting dress shirts that are untucked. Those are all, that's just us. That's just all stuff that we do. Does that make, do you understand what I'm saying? Those are man-made things that we put together and, and, and they're not as important as the things Jesus himself put together. In your Bible study guide that came, it's with everybody, it's digital. If you're uh, joining us online, it's also in, in your bulletin insert as always. But I, I mentioned Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, Ephesians 4 and 5. Again, as a review, because the way Jesus set up the church is that everybody has a job and everybody is gifted by the Holy Spirit to do that job. 
the leaders of the church, sometimes we call them APEST leaders because that's kind of an acronym for the leadership gifts. Sometimes they're called the five-fold leadership gifts. There's a bunch of different titles for that same concept depending on what church you were raised in. But those gifts, their job is to empower everybody else. That's very clear in Ephesians 4.12. They're not there to amass power or riches or authority or to get record deals or whatever else they might be trying to do. They're there to empower God's people to do God's work. And all of God's people have a job to do. All right. So that said, I'd like you to say this out loud with me, and then we're going to actually look at those two job descriptions, the elders and deacons, as we would call them, the overseers, episkopos, diakonos, servants, as it actually says in Greek. Let's say this out loud together. Leadership is a task, not a position. One more time. Leadership is a task, not a position. If we can remember that, We can all do a better job at whatever leadership, whatever role that God does give us. Just like the first believers, the first apostles, the first disciples, we are still sent out. We are still supposed to be following Jesus. And just like the original overseers and deacons, our elders and deacons are called to help the whole body Get where God wants them to go. Elders and deacons, for that reason, must meet certain criteria. And the clearest place that we're given that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But again, I want to make it really clear that this is the only two job descriptions that are that explicit in the scripture. There is no senior minister in the New Testament. There's no creative director or worship leader, discipleship minister, student minister, children's minister, benevolence director. I could go on and on and on. Depending on what church you grew up in, there's no bishop, there's no apostle, there's no choir director, there's no pope, there's no... Are you following me on this? Like, it's, these are all things that we have come up with trying our best to do what God wants us to do. But these are the ones that are explicit in Scripture, so... I think we're going to, they need to always have a little bit of extra attention. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 3 says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, Episcopos in Greek, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, and not... I'm sorry, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. All right, here we go down the Greek geek path one more time. The words that we translate as man and woman and husband and wife are the same words. So if you're reading a different translation and sometimes it says man and woman, sometimes it says husband and wife or it moves those around, it's because the translators are just doing their best. The only way we ever know for sure if it means man or woman or husband or wife is if it says of this person. So like if it says the wife of, then we know it, we know it means woman of means wife for sure. But sometimes we don't always know that. What we do know is this term here, husband of one wife, is more about the kind of person rather than a math problem. He's a one woman man. Okay. So for, this is how we understand it here. I again refer you back to the actual text. And if you disagree with how we apply it, 
Come and talk to us. We'll talk to you about it. Because we're always measuring our stuff against God and hoping all the other churches do the same. But here's how we understand this. This is somebody who maybe they'd been married before, maybe even before they were a Christian. That didn't work out. But as for years and years and years now, they're a one-woman man. Does it make sense? The life they're living now. They would still be eligible because this is who they are. This is what they do right now. We'll keep going. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And again, right or wrong, as we understand this, this is more about the kind of person. It's not saying if somebody does not have children that they're ineligible. If somebody for some reason doesn't have children, we would say, hmm, well, how do they treat children? How do they lead other people when they're in charge of something? Are they good managers? Because that's what it says. How does, he, how does he know how to manage his own household? How will he care for God's church if he doesn't even know how to manage? But if we can see that this person knows how to manage, he's that kind of a person. Does this make sense? That's how we understand it. But again, how we understand it is never going to be as important as the text itself. So... Keep going back to the text. We keep going. First Timothy 3, 6 to 7 says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. How many times have you seen somebody famous or really successful in some other field, and the second they decide that they're going to identify as a Christian, they're invited to speak at big conferences, and you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, welcome to the team. You're in charge. That's a mistake. It's, they're baby Christians, even though they're super successful in these other fields. And that's what Paul's saying. So now we move to the deacons. And again, this word servant, diakonos, is used in several different ways, not just as what we would call deacons. Here's an example. Romans 15.8, Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant. Same word, diakonos, to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness. He's not saying that Jesus became the deacon of a small messianic Jewish church. He's saying that Jesus served the Jews. That's the core meaning of that word. Another example is Romans 16, verses 1 to 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, to help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has become a patron of many and of myself as well. This is a woman who has been supporting Paul's ministry in several ways. He's sending her, and just like he does with Titus and Timothy and a bunch of other people, he's saying, listen, respect her. She represents me. Depending on your church background and your theology and several other things, some people read into this that women could also be deacons in the exact same way as the men that are described here. Some don't. Some would say, no, that's the word deacon. I'm just taking you to the scripture. It is the same word. We'll leave it at that this morning. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves 
blameless. And here we get to that confusing woman-wife thing again. Uh, in the, in the um, ESV, which I happen to be reading from today, it says their wives, likewise, must be dignified. In the original Greek, and it's translated that way in the ASV and the NIV and several others, it's, it's also, what it really says is the women. It doesn't say their women, their wives, just says the women. And in context, it does make a ton of sense, and it's traditionally, in many churches around the world, it's traditionally understood it means their wives. It certainly applies to their wives. But just throwing out there, if you ever hear somebody go, it actually says women, or you're looking at two different versions and you're confused. It's the same word, gynaika in Greek. That's where the confusion comes from. In fact, here's one more. I, 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 I hate to go down a rabbit hole, but this is really interesting to me at least, so please indulge me. When Jesus in Matthew 5, when he says, a man, if a man looks at a woman lustfully in his heart, it's the same as adultery. We always translate that man and woman. A few verses later, he says, if a man divorces his wife, we always say husband and wife. They're the exact same words. We just read those in. Anyway, 1 Timothy 3, we're almost done with these job descriptions, and we're going to start wrapping up with the story and what we're going to do about it. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And again, in the context of all this other stuff we're looking at, he's not promised them riches or power, huge amounts of authority or whatever else. He's saying the same thing Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. If you accept this, I'm an official servant of the church. It's going to go well for you. It's going to be a good thing. It's probably going to be really hard, too, but it's going to be a blessing. All that said, let's come back to how this applies to every single one of us. If God has called you to any ministry in the church or outside of it, if the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do literally anything that needs done to build the kingdom, this applies to all of us. Let's say this out loud together. We must keep lighting the world together. One more time. We must keep lighting the world together. Because brothers and sisters, this is the thing. Jesus himself is the ultimate light of the world, but he told us that as his representatives on this planet, we are the light of the world. You've heard this, right? What happens when you shut a light off? It instantly gets dark. Darkness is just the absence of light. And if the light is not shining, it just gets dark. Yes. That's why the Middle Ages are known sometimes as the Dark Ages. Because during this part of the church, and I'm not, don't misunderstand me here. At this point, there was just the church. We're not to the point in history yet where there was Catholic church and Protestant church. And then God only knows how many Protestant churches. Do you know what I'm saying? We hadn't got there yet. This was the church. This is all of our ancestors. This is all of us. But during this time, there was this slow process that kind of got into some really bad territory. And we've got to acknowledge that as part of our story today and part of what we want to make sure we don't repeat and as fuel to the fire what we want to make sure we get right. Has everybody got me? Okay, here we go. 
In the Council of Nicaea that we looked at last week, they chose unity based on who Jesus was and his identity and message, so far so good. But by 379, a new emperor who's also claiming to be a Christian, his name was Theodosius, Theodosius, I'm sorry, I always get that wrong. Theodosius, he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. That sounds great, doesn't it? But the problem is, when an empire enforces a certain religion, it starts looking a whole lot like the way they used to enforce the Roman mythology and persecute Christians. What actually ended up happening during the Dark Ages was the church persecuted non-Christians. And even worse, they persecuted Christians who didn't 100% agree with the official church interpretations of certain passages. They could get thrown in prison. They could sometimes even get killed. You've heard of the Inquisition, right? That's where that happened. Little by little, the Roman Empire, it didn't work well for them either. The Roman Empire split in two. There was now the East and the West and all of the, there, there was this merging of the Roman Empire and the church. And it was really blurry lines between the two. By 440, 440 was the year that one of the bishops, the bishop in Rome, he declared himself to be the head bishop. And everybody else had to answer to him. Eventually, they started calling him the pope. And some of his greatest accomplishments had nothing to do with church at all. He actually very successfully warded off Attila the Hun and kept him from attacking Rome. He, that was in 452. He also warded off Geyseric the Vandal. I hope I'm saying that right. In four, five, 455. But those are mostly political, empirical kind of things. See how the lines are getting blurry? And, and, and what happened was little by little, the people... The ecclesia, the people that Jesus said, everybody gets a voice, everybody gets a job. They stop meeting together in their homes. They stop having little Bible studies on their own. They stopped worshiping and praying and all those things for themselves. And there started to be this clergy laity split. All of this happened during this time. So now they would come to a big building, which they didn't even start out with buildings. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? Didn't even have buildings till 260 is the first building we know about. Okay, But by now, that's the only way you worship God. And when you come, you don't actually worship. You watch somebody else worship. Somebody else sings. Somebody else prays. Somebody else takes communion. Somebody else talks about the Bible. And then we all go home. And every church has struggled with that ever since. Whether there's a rock and roll band or a acapella or smoke and lights or very simple, whether there's a choir back here, it doesn't matter. All churches have struggled with, we just watch worship happen ever since. And no matter how or how often they celebrate communion, every church ever since has struggled with, well, we'll let the professionals take care of this. I'm just going to go through the motions. And we miss the idea that it's communion with not only remembering the broken body of Jesus himself, but also the body of Christ. And it's very clear in all, all the scriptures that talk about communion that it's both. We're acknowledging each other as well as Jesus. 
I hope this is tracking, and I hope you're hearing the heart, that the, the desire for unity, the unconditional love that I'm speaking this in. This is just truth. This is just history. This is just how it is, and we all struggle with this. But ever since then, as the Roman Empire continued to crumble and eventually disappeared, they came up with this other thing. A few history people out there, you'll like this. There's a thing called feudalism. Ever heard of that? And the way feudalism was set up was like a pyramid. You've got the reason, supposedly at least, that the person in charge is in charge is God called them, and you dare not question that. And then underneath them is some sort of a monarch, and then you've got lords, and then knights, and then peasants. Does this sound familiar? Ever since then, in every version of the church, we've struggled to not use that same model in the church. Because that's not the biblical model. I just read you the biblical model. There's elders, there's deacons. We're all followers and we're all sent. Right? But we struggle about this. We want somebody at the top who's got unquestionable authority. I promise you, I don't have that here. You're not dealing with that here at Morrison Hill. Unquestioned authority at the very top. Then you've got some people that support them, some yes men. Okay? And then you've got some other people that are kind of like pretty important. And then you've got everybody else. Every church ever since this era has struggled with not looking like that. But that's feudalism. That's not the church as Jesus described it. We also have the Crusades. The Crusades is kind of a mixed bag for me. It's, it's one of the things I literally want to wear a bag over my head when I say I'm a Christian because of. It's such a dark thing that when we had all the money and all the power, we as a church decided, let's go to war against the Muslims. Let's go kill all the infidels. That's what happened. That's what Christians did in this era. I'm so embarrassed about that. But you know what excites me about it? You know what inspires me about it? They were willing to sacrifice their own lives to spread the gospel. They were doing it 100% wrong, but they were sending their kids into this. They were sending themselves and their children into the fire, into the war, literally because they believed this was more important than anything else they might be about. Do we have that kind of passion today? Are we as obsessed and willing to sacrifice as they were? I don't think so most of the time. And that scares me. How could they be so wrong about how and so right about why at the same time? And how can we be so right about why or how and miss it? Brothers and sisters, uh, today we're going to read this scripture together. We're going to wrap this thing up. Before we read this one, I want to remind you one more. And listen carefully. These are the words of Jesus himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And here's what Jesus himself said. Would you read this one out loud with me, actually? And we're going to do this as the blessing. I'll just spoil it. Here it comes. This is also the blessing. Let's read this together out loud. 
Jesus tells this to us. Here we go. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This has always got to be the mission of the church, not just Morrison Hill, but as part of the global church, the body of Christ. We've got to always remember, we're not here to condemn people. We're not here to compete with other arms of the church, but we are here to make sure that we follow Christ's vision. When we're wrong, we've got to repent. And when we're right, we've got to lean even harder into it. And we've all got to work together to do good stuff that Jesus wants done and bring him glory in the world. This morning, maybe you've never even given your life to Jesus. We'd love to walk you through that. My dad's going to be here. I'll be at the back, both off camera, wherever you're comfortable. Come and talk to us about it. If you'd like to join the church, if you just need prayer, please feel free to make that decision. But let's all take a step in the direction that we talked about going today as we stand and as we sing.